So when Paul says, you've been brought near, how near have you been brought? You have not only been brought inside, which by the way, doesn't just mean Gentiles. It means everybody who's not in the front row. How near have you been brought? Well, couple this with what Peter says. Do you remember how Peter applies the covenant to the church? He has made you a kingdom of priests. So how close can you come? All the way up. There's no division in the family of God. Everybody is welcome up front. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. We have been working through Paul's epistle to the region of Ephesus. Remember, this is a circular letter that would have made its way around multiple churches within the region of Ephesus. And I will not do the extensive context work I did last week because essentially we traced all the way to where we are in chapter 2, the phrase in Christ. But I will just obviously remind you that in chapter 1, we studied verses 3 to 14, which is this extensive sentence, the longest sentence in the New Testament, about the spiritual blessings with which we're blessed in the heavenly places, and all of them are oriented in Christ. He says this in verse 3. He has blessed us in Christ. Paul, as you know, spent the second half of chapter 1 praying that we would know the power that we have in Christ, the blessings that we have in Christ, the gospel power that we have in Christ, which obviously brought us to chapter 2 where we began by understanding our fallen condition apart from Christ and what God has done in Christ in raising us with Him as He was raised from the dead and in raising us with Him to the heavenly places as He ascended to the heavens. All of this done in Him. And of course, last week we talked about the grace that we have through faith the salvation that we have in Christ. We are created for good works in Christ. Which brings us to the first half of this long unit that we're going to discuss this, this morning. We're going to, this morning we're just going to look at verses 11 to 16 together. And before we read it, just to let you know what Paul begins to do, and we know this from even just the very first word of verse 11, what Paul begins to do is funnel all of this, this rich doctrine regarding Jesus, all of this truth that we have in Christ, that's oriented in Christ. He now begins to work that towards the first primary application that we see in the book. He has been dealing with, obviously, incredible, and I've used this word a good bit, and we introduced this word, and, and I hope you understand why I use it by now, but all of this incredible, incredible cosmic theology regarding Jesus Christ, what God is doing in the, the cosmic realms, the spiritual realms, and, and then in relation to us, what He's done in Christ. And now He's going to take all of that incredible 
powerful, rich, deep theological truth, and he's going to begin to bring it down to an earthly level. But it remains relatively doctrinal, even in its application focus. And so having, that, having said that, now let's read verse 11 down to verse 16. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I have a question for you as we gather this morning. What, what brings us together? What brings us together? And it's a really important question as we orient ourselves to the, the foundation that Paul begins to lay here about the unity that we have in Christ, the unique bond that brings us together. You've all experienced at some point in your life some sort of camaraderie, or you might use the word unity, but you could only use it with certain parameters. For example, maybe you know the camaraderie of the workplace, that you with other people go to accomplish essentially a similar goal, but you, you have different roles within that workplace. And of course you know both the great joy of working with people that are a joy to work with and the opposite of that. The, the difficulty that it can be to work with people that you perceive to be difficult. Of course, they may perceive you to be difficult, but we know that can't be true. It's only other people that are ever difficult. Amen. Amen. I mean, I work with a church staff. Can you imagine my job? Just kidding. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. What about the camaraderie of fandom? You're going for the same team together. In fact, we are so weird. We can go to a sporting event and be surrounded by people that we have never met never talk to, and we will never talk to again, and go ballistic with them like we've known each other forever. 
But what happens when you go home from work, you're relieved. And what happens when the stadium lights turn off? There was no bond. It was just enthusiasm. What about the camaraderie of family? I mean, let's just speak about that from an outsider's perspective. How many of you have ever been, don't nudge your spouse, all right? How many of you have ever been dragged to a family reunion? I said, don't nudge your spouse. <laughs> and you have never met these people. And, you're, and then you go and you think, there is zero possibility I'm related to these individuals. <laughs> right? Okay, but, but that's broad. What about, what about even closer? I mean, what about like your family unit? What about when family becomes foe? What brings us together? Because our fallen condition has, has so succeeded in taking human relationship and altering it to the point where it makes something that should be so natural and joyous to us, human relationship, and making it a labor or a difficulty or a discouragement or a detriment. So what brings us together? This morning, I want you to see from this text that union to Christ creates unity in Christians. Union to Christ creates unity in Christians. Therefore, remember. Therefore, remember. I've already done just a little bit of background work, but Paul builds this foundation of all that we have in Christ. Namely, the therefore, I, I believe, is reliant on, on that fundamental doctrine, what we have in Christ. But immediately in chapter 2, we're reminded that we are dead, verses 1 to 3, in our trespasses and sins. We're reminded what Christ has, what God has done for us in Christ, given us new life, by grace we're saved through faith. He's, he's brought us, the end of verse 10, into existence. He's recreated us. He's created us in Christ for good works, which He prepared beforehand. Therefore, remember. And now He's going to address one specific audience. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles. And so I want to begin this morning in looking at verses 11 and 12 at an estranged people, an estranged people. And that people is, in this passage, the Gentile people. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called by the uncircumcision, quote, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
So Paul begins this idea by saying there are multiple ways in which you are estranged. And then he specifies those. And the first exclusion is a national exclusion. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Paul is pointing out the division here between Jew and Gentile. And so the first, the first division that he makes is clearly, when I say division, I mean a, a form of disunity. The first di- division or disunity that he references is an ethnic one. This kind, of, this kind of essentially racism between Jews and Gentiles. This racism or this ethnically motivated division worked on multiple levels. And Paul actually begins to... Or, or, or Paul just references this kind of low view that the Jews had of the Gentiles. They called them the uncircumcision. This was, a, this was a cheap term of insult that they would use about people who were not Jewish. They're not like us. It's a physical distinction that resulted in spiritual and ethnic division between Jew and Gentile. Of course, you know, circumcision was established by God in the earliest stage of Israel's history. In the very first given of the covenant in Genesis chapter 7, God, or the Abrahamic covenant at least, God tells Abraham that it is a sign of the covenant that every male born from his line should experience circumcision at eight days old. Circumcision does in the New Testament, as we've already even read this morning, does maintain a spiritual application though. Colossians chapter 2 verse 11, in him you were also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's not physical, it's spiritual. By putting off the body, the the image of circumcision, the removal of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So you've been saved spiritually. But the way that Paul means it is not spiritual here. He's actually referring directly to the derogatory nature that the Jews would refer to the Gentiles. And much like, unfortunately, today, a physical characteristic may become a derogatory slur, that's exactly what he's referring to. You were called the circumcision by those who were, who were called the, you were called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision. So they used it as a, a prejudicial term. And, and you know what this looks like. Unfortunately, this kind of um, physical characteristic racist slur still exists today. It's the same thing. It's just different words. So the division is deep and, and personal. And it's religious. The Jews thought themselves better because they were the receivers of God's promise. Receiver of God's covenant. Even back to the Old Testament, we see this kind of derogatory usage. First Samuel chapter 17, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for this man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And again, you know what this looks like. For example, for example, now obviously I'm going to be very careful here, but if you were to make fun of my height, which I know you'd never do, I was a youth pastor, so I know that's not true. If you were to make fun of my height, I would laugh with you. Actually, my habit is to make fun of my height before other people do. I have to get out in front of it, okay? Because my jokes about myself are much nicer than other people's, right? (laughs) 
it wouldn't be a big deal. But if you actually meant it as an insult, it would be completely different. So a physical characteristic becomes a matter of mistreatment. And if you were to do that, I would pray for you. I'm not saying what I would pray, but I would pray for you. This thing, this kind of thing, of course, still exists today. Now, it's important that you understand what he's doing here. He's not just talking historically. He's pointing out a source of disunity. But there's another sort of disunity in the text, division in the text. You weren't just nationally excluded. You were we. Gentiles were spiritually excluded. Spiritually excluded. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And then look at all the words he's going to stack up to indicate distance. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenant. Having no hope. Let's back up, verse 12. Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, and strangers of the covenant, having no hope and without God in the world. So far worse than even the detriment and the, 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 the sin of literal uh, uh, denigration of one's nationality on the basis of a physical characteristic, far worse than that kind of division is the spiritual separation that Paul refers to. He argues in verses 1 through 3 the effects, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, of spiritual deadness in all people. And in verses 11 and 12, he explains the effects of spiritual distance to the Gentiles. So verses 1 through 3, the effects of sin on all people, spiritual deadness. And in verses 11 and 12, the effects namely on the people who are not Jewish, spiritual distance from God, separation from from God. Just to summarize what he means with these terms, separated, alienated, commonwealth of Israel, covenants of promise, what he literally means is you were independent from Jesus. You were categorically independent from Jesus. Excluded from citizenship, that's what he means when he says commonwealth. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3, we are, we are of the citizenship of heaven. Unacquainted with, unacquainted with covenant blessings. You had no knowledge of this. No inclusion in it. And look, like, as if all of that wasn't enough. It's like, he's just, let's, let's just make this final one clear. Having no hope. And without God in the world. So you were removed, divided from the people of Israel, you were literally removed, separate from God Himself, which of course causes spiritual hopelessness. Do you see what He's doing? He's intentionally using this word and this logic and this image of something that's far away from something else. Why? 
Because he wants us to realize what's going to be brought together. Why? Because he's building a foundation of union and unity. So Paul's very intentional in the words that he uses. And just like, and I'm sure you noticed this because you're, you are good listeners of the Word, and just like in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, there's this stark contrast, we see the same thing here. So in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you were spiritually dead, and here's all the effects of it, but God being rich in mercy. And in this text, verse 13, though you were alienated from Israel, though you were alienated from God himself, you were independent of Jesus Christ, unacquainted with covenant, covenant blessings, but now. So we have another one of these massively glorious, powerful, incredibly important contrasts. But now, though you were so far away, something incredible has happened. And so look with me in verses 13 and 14 at an eternal peace. An eternal peace. First of all, an estranged people, the Gentiles, they were so far from salvation. Far from the people of God, far from the promises of God, far from God, period. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what specifically is Paul referring to here? But now, there's actually a, there's a very specific time element that, that Paul is referring to, that, that Paul uses here. If you look at me at verse 11, he says what? At one time... And in verse 12, he says, at that time. And in verse 13, he says, but now. So there was a time you were far away, but there is a time now in Christ when you are welcome near. And so first of all, look with me at our invitation to eternal peace, our invitation. And, and, this, and I use this word on purpose, and, I, and you'll see what I mean in just a moment. I've, I've, I've repeatedly mentioned, and I'm sure you've seen it to this point, that Paul is intentionally marking distance between us and God, between Jew and Gentile. We, are, we were far off, but now in Christ you've been brought near. And just by the way, just a, a sidestep application here. Isn't it comforting to know that you're welcome to come to God now because of who Christ is now and what he's done now? Because I think sometimes we think that the mark of a true Christian is what will be five years from now when we get our life together and we have a little more time to clean it up and a little more time to mature. Maybe you will know the benefits and the blessings of knowing God like next week when you feel better. Or maybe you'll know the blessing of coming to God in a few months when you've worked through whatever issue you're working through. You right now know the blessing of coming to God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once have been far off, or once were far off, have been brought near. So what is this phrase, being brought near? Well, there's a very obvious Old Testament aspect to it. Often, the Gentiles were referred, the Gentiles were referred to as far off. 
Deuteronomy 29:22, the next generation of children will rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, 1 Kings 8. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people comes from a far country, in contrast to those who are near God, Israel. Psalm 148:14. He has raised a horn for his people and praised for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. So there's, a, there's an Old Testament literal geographical aspect that those who are far off are far away from the, the peace of God, the presence of God, the, the, the promises of God. Because once you got closer to, in the land of Israel, once you got closer to Israel, and then once you got closer to Jerusalem, and then once you got closer to Zion, you were close to God. But that's not the primary image that he's pressing here. It is an aspect, but it's not the primary aspect. The primary image being pressed by Paul here is actually actually temple terminology. And listen, it's very important that you understand this. And so if you've you've maybe fallen asleep or or whatever, now's the time to wake up, all right? So if you need to do that trick where you pick your foot up so you stay, do do whatever you need to do. This is really important, and I'm actually going to tell you and I know you laugh at me when I say this, but it's true this time. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. <laughs> I'm serious this time. <laughs> You're shaking your head at me. This is awesome. Okay? So Paul is pressing temple imagery, which means you have to understand the temple. So during the time of the during the temple, during the time of Jesus, you realize that in the temple, and, and you see this, you actually see this very, very plainly in, uh, in, the, in the first century Romans, Roman temple, so the, the temple contemporaneous to the time of Jesus. First of all, it was massive. It was, more than, it was more than a football field long. And there were designated areas in which you could worship, depending on whatever demographic you fit. So those right out front were priests. Behind the priests were the Levites. Behind the Levites were the men. Then there was a gate. But then that gate were the women. And anyone else who wasn't uh, completely ceremonially clean, they couldn't enter. And then there were four walls. And you know where the Gentiles were? Outside the walls. And the gate was shut. Actually, history tells us that this is what was inscribed on all four of the temple walls. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. I mean, you can just hear Roman terminology there. Listen, Gentiles were literally outsiders. But you and I didn't take the blame. We didn't know the ensuing death. We have been blessed in Christ because Christ Himself is our peace and He draws us near by His 
blood, verse 14, by the blood of Christ, for he is himself our peace. So when Paul says, you've been brought near, how near have you been brought? You have not only been brought inside, which by the way, doesn't just mean Gentiles. It means everybody who's not in the front row. How near have you been brought? Well, couple this with what Peter says. Do you remember how Peter applies the covenant to the church? He has made you a kingdom of priests. So how close can you come? All the way up. There's no division in the family of God. Everybody is welcome up front. So our invitation is literally to come from the outside all the way up. How? Through our intermediary, by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He provides contractual peace by fulfilling the terms of the law, righteousness, and payment through his blood. But he not only provides that peace, he is our himself, our eternal peace, because he lives ever to intercede for us eternally. But look what he says. What happens to the wall? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh. The tearing of Jesus' flesh tears down the wall. In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility or enmity, what kept Jew and Gentile from each other and what kept Gentile from God. So what brings us together? The finished cross work of Jesus Christ. And what has he done? What does this accomplish? Look with me thirdly at an established people. An established people. He's torn down the flesh and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's destroyed the wall and he's made, he's established one new people. Note he doesn't just bring two people together, he actually starts all over and establishes one new people. And how is this possible? First of all, through revocation. And I say that from verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, when I say, when I say revocation, listen, I don't mean that he comes to destroy the law, but that in his superiority to it and in accomplishing the law, he revokes its effects upon us. And by the Spirit, think of Romans 8, the Spirit has done what the flesh, according to the law, could not do, freeing us. 
So from the regulations of the Jewish law, which was another barrier that kept apart Jew and not only Gentile, but Gentile and God. Gentiles had their own specific set of regulations that they had to accomplish if they wanted to follow Yahweh. So another barrier has been removed. The, the, the distance has even been further closed. Through the dividing wall of hostility, not only between Jew and Gentile, but between Gentile and God. Note, and as, as I said in just a moment, this established people is not just unified, but actually recreated. So they're established through revocation of the law and through recreation, spiritual recreation. Gentiles do not simply rise to the status of Jews, nor do Jews submit to the differences of Gentiles. He's made them one new people. And this has already been established in the passage. Do you remember or further up in, in, in chapter 2? Look at me verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Do you remember what I said that means last week? Brought into new existence. So as God has done through Christ, by grace, through faith, through the converted person, brought them into new spiritual existence, so has he done with his people, brought them as one into new existence. So through revocation of the law, through recreation, and finally, and most importantly, through reconciliation. Reconciliation. Look with me at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This word reconcile is the New Testament gospel reality that means to bring enemies of God into peace and friendship with God. And so what Christ has done, or what God has done in Christ, is not only bring two parties that were at one time at war and in conflict into one new created people, but God has taken people who were dead in their trespasses and sins and apart from him, and God has taken Gentiles who, who had the barrier of the law, had the, had, had the barrier of ceremony, and removed those barriers through Christ has become their friend. And through adoption in God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has made his friends his family. And so the outsiders not only are welcome into the, into the place of worship, the outsiders are welcome into the home. This is what Paul means in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Well, what? establishes the peace. 
A treaty must be written up. A treaty with terms. And someone has to meet those terms and someone has to sign it. And Christ alone is sufficient to enact this peace treaty because Christ alone is sufficient by his perfect nature to meet the terms and by his perfect blood to sign it. And so your freedom is in red lettering. Our peace is secured for us in his flesh. So what brings us together, brother and sister? What brings us together? I mean, just like church is really fun. Listen, I I have fun at church. I love seeing you all. I love singing with you. I love preaching. I have fun here, but that's not why we're here. Because we love our friends. Teenagers, if you come to church because you love your friends, you will quit coming eventually. You will. Because mommy and daddy make you. Because people will think bad about you if you don't. Because you have to, your name's on the schedule this week and you have to do it. What brought us together? What brought us together here, listen, is what brought us to, will bring us together there. And so what brings us together here is a foretaste, a sampling, and a small but glorious manifestation of what has brought us together eternally. The theological foundation of true Christian union to Christ purifies and clarifies every Christian motive for how they think about the church. It alters your priorities when you come. So here's another question. If this is our theological foundation for true unity, that we've been brought near by his blood, we've been brought into one union, recreated into one new man, why do the people of God so struggle in maintaining oneness? And I have an answer for you. Because we cling to the things of this world. Personal preferences, personal opinions, personal, you can call whatever you want. We cling to them so tightly as reflections of things that we want. And actually, the reasons that we think about church are weak and insufficient so that we are gathered for the wrong reasons. And when we're gathered for the wrong reasons, we'll leave for the wrong reasons. We'll start fights for the wrong reasons. We will have unity in the wrong place, which, by the way, isn't unity at all. And the people of God sacrifice, sacrifice what is strong enough to keep us together. Union to Christ. 
for what is weak enough to pull us apart. And we end up living out in the weakness rather than clinging to the strength of our union. Now, it's really important that we understand this because Paul's about to talk about unity for the next long time. I mean, most of the book in some way or another. So why are we here? As far as I know, we don't have anybody Jewish in our congregation. But even if we did, this is true of them. Do you know why we're here? Because we've been brought near and invited to be here. So our union to Christ ought to create and cultivate unity in our relationships with one another. 